You're listening to the Yoga Inspiration Podcast with me, your host, Kino McGregor. I created this series to keep you inspired to get on the mat every day so that you can practice yoga and change your world, starting from the inside out, one breath at a time. Thanks so much for listening. Your support means everything to me. Hi, everyone. It's Kino here. Thanks so much for tuning in to Seek Up, the Yoga Inspiration Show. As yoga practitioners all around the world, we have a uniting moral and ethical principle that's been given to us from the ancient history of yoga. We can trace perhaps what is one of the most foundational principles of yoga back to Patanjali's Yoga Sutras, which begin with the eight old path or the eight-limbed path called Ashtanga Yoga, Ashtanga, which is the eight limbs. The first of the eight limbs is the yamas. The yamas are the moral and ethical principles by which every yogi and every yoga practitioner, whether they're a renunciate or a householder, a student, a teacher, or in any other walk of life considering to be on the path of yoga, follows these principles as vows. And the first of these vows is called ahimsa or nonviolence. We could also translate ahimsa as the diametric opposite of violence, which we could call peace or maybe even love. Now, according to Patanjali, the, the principles of the moral and ethical foundations of yoga are applicable regardless of jati, desha, time, place, in society, or in any other condition that we find ourselves. And unfortunately, the reason that I am talking to you at this particular moment in a prayer for peace and mentioning ahimsa is because there is currently a war happening uh, in such a way so that it is impacting many people on the European continent. And as, as many of you know, my husband is from Denmark. So we spend a lot of time in, in Europe. And so this particular conflict feels very close to home for us. Um, so... I'm sure that many of you have already tuned in to the unsettling news of the Russian invasion of Ukraine and Ukraine's resistance to the Russian invasion. I want to start off first in the big broad scope uh, and really acknowledge that I'm not an expert in Ukraine-Russia relations, nor, nor am I an expert in international foreign policy, nor am I you know, a professional mediator or anything like that. I speak from this from the paradigm of the yogi, which is the path of ahimsa, uh, the path of nonviolence. And it's along these lines that I want to begin uh, this discussion. So first and foremost, this is a prayer for peace. War and killing are madness. War and killing stem from perhaps one of our deepest samskaras. In the history of human civilization, we can see war after war, war after war, killing after killing, killing after killing, dating back until time immemorial. We could even say that the human condition is marked by no other quality other than the, perhaps no other quality more so than the ability to make war. We like to think of ourselves as a, as a society of peace, love, and harmony when in fact our history has been defined by who's won various wars here and there. I would actually like to present the idea that if you're practicing yoga, you're called to evolve beyond the paradigm of competition, jealousy, paranoia that seems to perpetuate an endless cycle of war and killing, war and killing. This to me is madness. We seem to expect different results while repeating the same thing. We expect a peaceful world when, in fact, we engage in the same behaviors, domination, warfare, 
and subjugation of those who are less than. No one wins in war. Even those who win, the victors, are actually losers as well. There's a karmic debt to be paid by every victor. And the losers also are not totally free of the karmic cycle. It's easy to fall into the roles of victim and perpetrator and hero. And this is a common karmic dynamic, or you could even say emotional behavioral dynamic that's at play in the human psyche on an individual level, and very much so on a sociological and global level when we engage in the decision to enter into warfare. Each time a human being dies on the battlefield, there's a trail of grief that follows their families and perhaps for their entire country. Every soldier is a father, mother, brother, sister, son, or daughter. Every soldier is a human being who belongs to a family. Every innocent bystander taken by the fight had a life, a life whose potential for love was cut short. The sorrow caused by the loss of life on the scale of war is deep and scarring. It lasts beyond one lifetime. When I think of the tragedy of the loss of life that comes from us engaging in hand-to-hand physical combat, it's overwhelming for me. Life is so precious, peace so tenuous, forgiveness sometimes more brave than anything else. When we think about the war that is currently being raged, there are acts of heroism which are astounding. There are stories of Ukrainian of a Ukrainian grandma who walks up to Russian soldiers and tells them to go back to their country because they have a country and this is her country. And she says, take these sunflower seeds so that if you die here in this country, sunflowers will grow to heal the wounds of the battle. There's the story of a man who stood in front of a tank and tried to stop the approaching tanks from entering Ukraine, blocking the tanks with his body. There is a story of a Ukrainian army engineer who blew himself in a bridge up to stop the advance of the invading Russian troops. There is a story of radio engineers from Ukraine who were told to surrender, and over the radio, they said to go F yourselves and were killed immediately. The Ukrainian president has said that those individuals will be given the highest award of heroism once the battle is over. But here we are so far away. And the question that I want us all to think about is what can we as individuals, perhaps sitting in an immense place of privilege in safety, not being shelled at night with our homes, not being invaded by a foreign enemy, what can we do to prevent the next world war from happening? Well, depending on what your work is in the world, you may have the direct potential to affect change. Perhaps you're, you're a policymaker. Perhaps You're even in one of the two countries that this uh, war is impacting. Perhaps you're in Ukraine. Perhaps you're in Russia listening. Perhaps you even sit in a position of power and can whisper into the ears of world leaders and say a prayer for peace. But no matter who you are, wherever you are, what your work is, you too can help to fulfill the peace that is within the heart and within the potential of every human being. Right now, there are definitely times when we ourselves engage in warfare. So it's easy to look at the act of physical warfare and say, yo, uh, definitely the invading party should stop. We're against war. We pray for peace. But in actuality, only when we stop the war within ourselves, when our own anger, when our own hatred, our own bitterness and fear soften, only then 
will we be able to truly transform. And only when hatred, bitterness, and fear are removed from the hearts of every human being will the human civilization and our world be free. The vow of what is called the bodhisattva is enlightenment for the benefit of all beings. So enlightenment, the peace that we feel for ourselves, is not ours. It's not ours alone. We stay and we work no matter what level of the path we're on, even if one small bit of peace is ours, we share that with others. I have very far to go down on the path. I've engaged in, you know, <laughs> warfare on a public scale against the corporation. My husband and I fight sometimes and it gets the better of me too. So I'm here on the path, just like you. And I know what it means to feel anger, hatred, bitterness, and fear. And I also know what it means to stare down those demons and to choose the path of love, to choose the path of kindness. I believe that is why we're here, to learn how to choose love, how to choose forgiveness, and how to choose peace in the midst of war, the war that may be waged in the outside, and the war that's in our hearts. How can our world ever really know peace when we remain at war with ourselves? While I'm sad to, very, very sad to read the news over the last few days, I want you to join me in a prayer for peace. Peace in the world, peace within ourselves, and peace within Russia and Ukraine, and peace within every warring faction in the whole history of human civilization. If we can stand on the leading edge of peacefulness within ourselves, if we can work to resolve our own difficulties, if we can make peace in our families, then if we can make peace in our hearts, if we can forgive ourselves, if we can make peace in our families, our friends, and our communities, then we have taken one step forward, a big step forward, into living in a peaceful world. Of course, peace and justice are intimately connected, and it is not easy to have peace without justice. So we have to be very mindful as we pray for peace, not to engage in an act of spiritual bypassing, not to disregard opposing point of views, but instead to embrace all. And it's along these lines that I want to share with you a little bit of background information about the history of Russia and Ukraine that perhaps you might not know. And perhaps this can contextualize a little bit about what's happening now in, um, in this part of the world. First, to ask the question, why is Ukraine so important to Russia? Well, the two neighboring countries have been intertwined for over thousands of years of tumultuous history. Today, Ukraine is one of Russia's biggest markets for natural gas exports. Ukraine represents a critical transit route to the rest of Europe. And, Russia, uh, and, and, and within uh, Ukraine, there are an estimated 7.5 million ethnic Russians, most of whom live in eastern Ukraine and the southern re region of Crimea. Um, and this is the most contested region of, of Ukraine where the separatists, uh, the Russian-backed separatist areas were uh, sort of waging a long war with the existing government of Ukraine. Well, all told, about 25% of Ukraine's 46 million people claim Russia as their mother tongue. Russia also lacks natural borders like rivers, mountains along its western frontier. So traditionally, its leaders have seen a sphere of influence as a sort of security. Uh, a source of security. And this is especially true of Ukraine. Russia regards Ukraine 
kind of as its little brother. And uh, some Kremlin, a, a Kremlin advisor called Sergei Markov uh, has said that everybody knows Ukraine, Ukrainians are Russians, except for the Galicians. And I'm not sure if I pronounce all of that correctly. But there are, in the Western region of Ukraine, there are a vast majority of Western speaking, uh, sorry, a Ukrainian speaking residents. And I'm, we're, I'm assuming he's referring, it's a reference, the Galicians is a, re- a reference to, to the Western portion of Ukraine, which borders Poland and in, in which um, is furthest away from Russia. So we have to ask, you know, why do Russians see Ukraine as theirs? And why do they think that perhaps it's okay to uh, go into the Ukrainian territory? Well, it's partly because both nations trace their backs, r- trace their roots back to the first East Slavic state called the Kievan Rus, which stretched from the Baltic to the Black Sea from the 9th century to the mid-13th century. This medi- medieval empire was founded, oddly enough, by Vikings. Rus is the Slavic word given to red-haired Scandinavians who swept down from the north in the 9th century, conquered the local Slavic tribes, and established their capital at Kiev. The kingdom converted to Eastern Orthodox Christianity in the year 988, laying the foundation of the modern Russian Orthodox Church. A French bishop sent to Ukraine reported, this land is more unified, happier, stronger, and more civilized than France itself. But in the 13th century, Kiev was devastated by Mongol invaders and power shifted north to a small Rus trading outpost called Moscow. What happened to Ukraine after Kievan Rus fell? Well, its territory was carved up by competing powers who prized the fertile plains and rich dark soil that later earned Ukraine the nickname the breadbasket of Europe. Catholic Poland and Lithuania dominated the country for hundreds of years, but by the end of the 18th century, Imperial Russia had grabbed most of Ukraine, except for Galicia, which was controlled by the Austro-Hungarian Empire. The Tsars referred to their dominion as Little Russia and tried to crush surging Ukrainian nationalism in the 1840s, banning the use of the Ukrainian language in schools. So how did Ukraine break away from all this? The first independent Ukrainian state was declared in Kiev in 1917, following the collapse of the Russian and Austro-Hungarian empires at the end of World War I. That independence was short-lived. The new country was invaded by Poland and fought over by forces loyal to the Tsar and to Moscow's new Bolshevik government, which took power in Russia's 1918 revolution. By the time Ukraine was incorporated into the Soviet Union in 1922, its economy was in tatters and its populace starving. Worse to come, when Ukrainian peasants refused to join collective farms in the 1930s, Soviet leader Joseph, Joseph Stalin orchestrated max, mass executions and a famine that killed up to 10 million people. Afterwards, Stalin imported millions of Russians and other Soviet citizens to help repopulate the coal and iron ore-rich East. The mass migration, said former U.S. ambassador to Ukraine, Stephen Pfeiffer, helps explain why the sense of Ukrainian nationalism is not as deep in the East as it is in the West. World War II exacerbated this divide. What happened in the war in World War II? Well, When the Nazis invaded Ukraine in 1941, many locals welcomed the Germans as liberators from the Soviets, and tens of thousands even fought alongside them, hoping Adolf Hitler would reward them with an independent state. Later, when the Nazis began using Ukrainians as slave labor, about 2.5 million fought for Stalin's Red Army. The country became one of World War II's bloodiest battlefields. At least 5.3 million Ukrainians died during the war, about one-sixth of the population. About 2.25 million of those killed were Jews, targeted both by the Nazis and some Ukrainian collaborators. 
At the end of the war, Stalin deported tens of thousands of Ukrainians accused of cooperating with the Nazis to Siberian prison camps and executed thousands more. When did Ukraine become truly independent? Well, in 1991, more than 90% of Ukrainians voted to declare independence from the crumbling Soviet Union. But Russia continued to meddle in the country's affairs. In Ukraine's 2004 presidential election, the Kremlin-backed pro-Russian candidate Viktor Yanukovych prevailed. Massive fraud in that election sparked the Orange Revolution, which kept Yanukovych from power. The failure of subsequent leaders led to Yanukovych's making a comeback in 2010. But after he canceled a trade deal with the European Union, he was driven from office again by pro-Western demonstrators. Despite the world's outrage, Russian President Vladimir Putin is probably unlikely to let Ukraine leave his country's orbit. This annexation of Ukraine began uh, with the annexation of Crimea in a recent war that was left unchallenged. Um, numerous politicians and experts in international policy seem to indicate that the Russian president was using the annexation of Crimea to test the Western civilization's struggle and ability to wrestle with him on this grand level of, uh, of, of international conflict. Additionally, the relationship between Ukraine and the Soviet Union is a little bit more complex even more than what we've described so far. At the dissolution of the Soviet Union, Ukraine was one of the most powerful nuclear states in the world. Ukraine uh, actually had a, a vast majority of nuclear weapons. And in, uh, in, in December 1994 in Budapest, Hungary, they signed, the Ukrainians signed the Budapest Memorandum with security assurances that their sovereignty would be respected. And in order for their sovereignty to be respected, they agreed to hand over all of the nuclear weapons. This was part of the nuclear non-proliferation treaties that were going on. The original signatories to this included Belarus, Kazakhstan, Ukraine, Russia, United States, and the United Kingdom. The memorandum included security assurances against the threats or use of force against the territorial integrity or political independence of Ukraine, Belarus, and Kazakhstan. As we can see currently, both the annexation of Crimea and the current invasion of uh, Ukraine violate the Budapest Memorandum which is the entire foundation upon which that, the, that Ukraine gave up its nuclear powers. Additionally, the 2004 revolution called the Maiden Revolution, which is what uh, created the current uh, Ukrainian government, is, uh, was a series of, of protests that resulted in uh, the disposing of the Moscow-backed previous president, Viktor Yanukovych. And it's a question of how this is seen by both sides of the world. So in the Western world, we are very much the, the united European and the Eurocentric and North American-centric view of this is very much that the Ukrainians stepped in to claim their democracy. On the other hand, Russians on their side see the, the Maiden Revolution as merely another act of U.S. meddling in their affairs. Now, this is the history that I've been able to compile and to share with you. I, I think there's probably more to dive into. I want to share with you a couple of uh, a, a, a real world perspective um, 
And, and this real world perspective includes the Russian diaspora and the Ukrainian diaspora of individuals who maybe were born in Russia or, or of Russian descent uh, who are, who are, whose families may still be in Russia or still be in Ukraine. And in this regard, there are, are people who Ha, who were perhaps who perhaps even remember when the communist flag came down and who could have witnessed the revolution and recognized firsthand the conflict between Russia and Ukraine while it, while Ukraine has while Ukraine is its own independent country there's high quality agriculture and serious military and economic advantages to the Ukrainian position rich soil oil reserves and access to the black sea it is very easy to tell a story of the unification from the Russian perspective. And, and from the Ukrainian perspective, it's very easy to tell a story of independence. The question, when we fast forward to present day, is to understand the motive behind an actual war. There may be disagreements. Uh, there may be a story of genealogy. But when one individual nation decides to invade another, that's an escalation of differences. So the current war, perhaps, could be traced to the idea that it's not only about reclaiming Ukraine or reclaiming Ukraine's resources, but is in fact reclaiming that sphere of Soviet influence, which seems to have dissipated in the years in, since the fall of the Soviet Union. Along these lines, the question of influence, the question of the need for influence, begins to beg all of our, beg the question of what, what is our purpose? You know, how can we influence this? I want to share one more story of a student, a student of ours who um, I saw immediately after the initial invasion was, uh, you know, was announced. And she said to me that her parents were in Kiev. And she said to me with tears in her eyes, I don't know if they're going to be okay or if I just never hear from them again. So let us not forget the real human impact of real human beings whose lives are on the line, whose homes are being destroyed even as we speak now. So again, while taking into the historical context, this talk today is a prayer for peace. So in conclusion, with as much of the knowledge of the long conflicted pasts that these two countries share, with as much recognition of the position of privilege that we sit in to be safe in our homes, with whatever advantages we may have had in our life, let us come together and say a prayer for peace. May there be peace between Ukraine and Russia. May the parties on both sides put aside their grievances. May a peaceful resolution to this conflict come into being. May Ukraine and Russia live in balance. May the whole world find a diplomatic solution to any conflict that's present. May our world, our hearts, our civilization be protected from anger. May all anger, all hatred, all animosity, all violence, may all this be broken. May we break the spell of suffering. May we step onto the path, the path of peacefulness. May we do the work that is in our hearts and hold on to the dream, no matter how distant it may seem. May we send love, love to those who are persecuted and love to the persecutors as well, because all who have been harmed are easily ready to harm again. May the cycle of violence be broken, broken within ourselves, broken within the world. May a new cycle of peace be born out of the ashes of what has been burned down in the past. 
May we come together and stand for peace, harmony, and love. And may we take this prayer into action, those of us who are able to act, whether that is donating money or organizing on the ground or speaking out on social media or protesting, or whether that is acting behind the scenes where no one can see. May we be inspired to act and be an act of peace, an act of love, and an act of justice in the world. May we live in harmony. May we live in peace. May we live in love. Hey there, it's Kino here. I just wanted to thank you for tuning in to my podcast. Your support and your time and your attention really mean a lot to me. If you're enjoying this podcast series, you can find the full-length videos on my online channel, OMSTARS, and that's at www.omstars.com. You can redeem a 14-day free trial and get access to our full library of over 3,000 classes and also practice yoga with me online. I'd also love to see you in class sometime. So you can find my full live in-person teaching schedule on my website, which is kinoyoga.com. And if you haven't checked out my books, I'd absolutely be honored if you'd check those out. You can find those available at any online bookseller. The Yoga Inspiration Podcast is designed to keep you inspired to get on the mat. And I hope you're leaving each episode with a little glimmer and spark of the spirit which is the true heart of the yoga method. Thanks so much for tuning in, everyone. May you be happy. May you be peaceful. May you be filled with love. Namaste.